Hello, and welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan, and today I'm speaking once again with Peter Kessler. You all know who Peter Kessler is. He's the voice of golf and was the face and master of ceremonies for All Things Golf Channel from its first broadcast in 1995 through 2002. For some 25 years, he's been all over sports media through television, radio, and print, from HBO to Golf Talk Live to commercials, radio programs, to his own show on Sirius XM Radio. He's even been a previous guest on this podcast. That's episodes 17 and 18, if you want to go back and check those out. A few months ago, I asked him to come back on the podcast toward the end of the year and do a kind of recap of the last 12 months of golf. No one knows more people, has more stories, has better takes, or dishes better than Kessler. And I wanted to get some of those thoughts on the record. Then something interesting happened a few weeks ago. Kessler, on Twitter, made a critical comment about a promo video recently put out by the guys at No Laying Up, an incredibly popular blog, podcast, social media group that seems to represent the next wave of golf coverage and entertainment. The backlash to Kessler's diss from No Laying Up supporters was enormous and swift. Kessler was criticized for being out of touch, uninformed, insane, past his prime, and just about everything else. For nearly a week, Kessler responded to each ongoing comment with his own creative and sometimes bizarre repost, and the whole incident took on a life of its own. Kessler also directed his own commentary toward tweets by the Golf Channel's Brandel Shambly in regards to PGA Tour course setups, bifurcation, rolling the ball back, and technology and distance games. He even then bombed a tweet by Ian Poulter. From the outside looking in, it was, well, strange. Golf.com even devoted an entire story to the exchanges. Many openly wondered if Kessler had gone off the reservation or if his account had been hacked. I had already planned to have him on and still wanted to have that year-in-review conversation, but I also invited him to discuss the social media flare-up as well as topics related to an evolving media landscape, what's wrong with it, and how he and people like me fit in. What's great and refreshing about Peter is he's always game. He brings the heat every time he steps on the mound and he never walks a batter. He's in full Kessler force in this conversation as we spoke about the Twitter incidents, the current state of the golf media, and we even got around to talking a little golf. So here he is. I know you'll enjoy this. It's Peter Kessler. Trying to call, I'm just trying to cause trouble. I hear that. I hear that. Um, Notice that a little bit. Well, let's let's get into that. The, the news of the week. I mean, I I wanted to talk to you about golf stuff, of course. I'd like to come back to the expert now and again to kind of get refreshed. But the news of the week, of course, was the the Twitter event, it was, which kind of turned into a like a week long Shriners roast. You, you playing the Don Rickle role of <laughs> just kind of like Sir Lancelot and you know the Holy Grail, just swiping people left and right as they came after you. Uh, <laughs> but it started with you uh, making a an assessment or a criticism of uh, no laying up preview of their upcoming uh, YouTube channel show that they had produced and. Uh, suddenly it just got out of hand. Did it feel like it got out of hand to you? It, it was just person after person coming after you for what <laughs> for your criticism of that 90-second ad. Well, I, I certainly realized when I posted the tweet that I would get some hate mail because these guys are actually quite popular. These no-laying-up boys. And um, I know a lot of uh, particularly young people um, like what they're doing. 
and I wasn't particularly familiar. I must admit, I you know it was one of the things that I just hadn't paid full attention to. So I saw this promo, and I thought it was terrible. It was about a minute long, and it was supposed to promote a trip to Scotland, but I didn't feel like it did anything of the kind. It was just some you know random shots of the guys you know trying to you know throw you know intelligent looking faces by turning their head over their shoulders and looking back into the camera in a self-satisfied manner and to me that isn't anything that's not that's not about a preview in Scotland and I thought it was very poorly done I mean you know, it was shot fine but it was it, it wasn't anything it wasn't anything at all and it certainly wasn't anything that would make you want to watch the thing that it was promoting you know when you go to the movies or certainly in the old days when you did you know they they'd have too many now but you know, promos for upcoming movies. And one of them you go, I'm definitely not seeing that. Oof, does that look awful? And then you go, I might check that one out. That looks cool. The Godfather, hmm, that could be interesting. That's a nice promo. So you go ahead and you watch the film. So the promo is designed to elicit attention. It definitely did not elicit my attention. So apparently I got between 80 and 100 responses all telling me that I was, you know, the most horrible person that ever lived. And my reaction was, oh, this is fantastic because um, I'm, I'm writing some television shows right now. And what I'm finding happens is if I get stuck on a particular moment in the show, I just go and see what's happening in my Twitter account. And I might do that for a couple hours. And all of a sudden I go, okay, it, it worked. I, it worked because while I was typing, and I try hard to type really good sentences and everything, and to not be a jerk anymore, I abandoned that role a few months ago, so now I'm just tough, and I do my golf history, I try to be witty, I try to be funny, I try to poke fun, I feel like I'm doing that better than anybody else is doing that on Twitter now, and you know, I've tried to be the best at every single thing in media that I could be, and I think I was pretty successful at that. It took me a long time to figure out the Twitter thing, and I think I've got it now. And um, I know a lot of people are starting to follow the account. My my people following me is up a couple thousand lately, which is unusual. But obviously, it's because I've been very provocative, and I've obviously captured people's attention. So when I got all the notes from all the no laying up uh, fans. I just thought about something Arnold once told me. You know, I told him I'd gotten this strange letter. I was sitting with him one day, and he said, oh, you got to answer those. He said, you got to answer them all, actually. He said, and if they're really strange or they give you a hard time and something like that, he said, try to give everybody something special. Try to give everybody something interesting. But you have to return your mail. So I'm looking at it and going, Arnold, in heaven, there's 85 of them, Arnold. There's 85, and you had an assistant. You just signed them. You <laughs> pretended to write them, but you didn't write anything. You don't even know how to write. So I went, okay, I'm going to answer them all. So I answered every single one. And I shot every single person between the eyes, which is part of my responsibility because I'm on deployment as the Twitter sniper. As you know, I was appointed by Space Force to be, you know, to, to, to handle this role. And I was very honored that, that Trump and his people would bestow this on me to be the Twitter sniper. So, you know, I have an obligation to the, to the country now. So, so, yeah, so I answer them all. I do the best job I can. I try to be funny. Um, if I laugh at my own comment before I push reply, that's the test. My two favorites 
were my two comments about Brandel and Trump and Space Force building golf courses on in outer space, actually, over the last few days. So really enjoyed that. I laughed out loud so hard. Janet, who I've been with for 100 years, comes outside and goes, what is so hysterical? And she goes, don't tell me. It's something you wrote, right? And I went, yes. She said, who writes at their own, laughs at their own stuff? She said, but I know the signs. I'll see you in a little while. So she gets, she totally gets me, even though I'm a nutter. But yes, I really enjoyed the whole Twitter thing. And I think we've kissed and made up because, you know, all I did was trash the promo. I wasn't saying there was anything wrong with them. I don't even know them. I haven't even given their work a chance. I, I haven't even looked at it yet. So I, I can't call them. I can't assess their overall material because I haven't done the homework yet. And so at this point, they deserve me to watch their stuff. I've crushed the promo. Okay. But now I'm going to take a look. A lot of people like it. And if it's good, I'm going to be the first one to say so. And I'm rooting for these dudes. We need more good golf content. The Golf Channel doesn't provide any. There are really no websites that provide anything. These guys are trying to make something happen. I'm rooting for them big time. You know, now we have this thing. They sent me a sent out a note saying that some guy had won the contest and that I was the early front runner, but I didn't win because I didn't follow the format. And, you know, here's a useless 0% off coupon to buy merchandise. And I wrote back and said, you know, I, you guys are a little short on colors. And, you know, is there something you can do with a hat, you know, something on the back where it says PK is a D bag or something with similar feeling. <laughs> and so we've got to, you know, so we're fine. We're, we're fine. I, I said, you know, I was very tough. That, that fellow Tron sent man, a note to me, probably shouldn't have sent that he would probably like back to, but you know, we're good. We're fine. I don't want any trouble with anybody. I don't mind having trouble with Brandel, and I don't mind having trouble with anybody who thinks the, the ball is, isn't a problem. And I'm going to go after him, and I'm going to go after him, and I'm going to go after him. And I'm not alone. I've got you, and I've got Rod Morey, and I've got Mike Clayton. And, you know, there's a lot of guys, Tom Doak, Ben Crenshaw, you know, they're Tiger Woods. I mean, Tiger Woods is building courses that you would have built in the 1920s with width and interesting angles, and you, the recreational players can make fives, but it's, you still have to hit a really good shot if you're a good player. I mean, so he's on the case. So there's there's a tremendous movement, you know, and, and, and you're really right in the middle of this thing of people who understand that the ball doesn't fit the field of play, and it just simply needs to be regulated. It's the only major sport where the equipment isn't regulated. It's curious. And we can get back to that topic in, in a little bit, but just to kind of follow up on this Twitter, maybe cl hopefully close the book on it, at least for now, the perception out there, just by observing, from my role as an observer, you're the sniper, I'm the watcher, is that I think everything that you were saying was was being misunderstood. Maybe it wasn't clear what you were doing. I don't think it was. And there was sort of this this idea out there that you've lost your rocker, that you've lost your marbles, and that your criticism of this particular ad as and maybe an extension of, of some of the, the work that's out in social media or in the golf media, the new golf media, is you come off like you're sounding like the old man shaking his fist at things. Hearing you talk about it, that, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. But the most interesting thing about this whole saga was really not what you said, or no laying ups reaction. It was the reaction of everybody who came after you. That was the sideshow. And I think there was this broad misunderstanding out there. I think it's a misunderstanding that you, that you just lost your shit and, and were a crazy man. 
Oh, that's fine. It's it's always it's always good when people think you're interesting and complicated and unpredictable. So I don't have any problem with that because there isn't really quite anybody like me in the golf world. You know, I'm the only one who really says what he thinks. I always respond to people. I, I try to stand up for what's honest. I try to stand up for what's right. And I really did, Derek, try very hard in my responses to this 80 or 100 people to explain myself. I, you know, and I, certainly I wanted to, you know, shoot them between the eyes. That's part of the deal. Because they, you know, because they came after me with a full battalion and I was able to, you know, to take cover. But, you know, they can't take cover against Twitter sniper i'm like you know the guy i'm like in the the role that bradley cooper played i can hit you from five thousand yards no problem so i wanted to be sure that my responses tried to explain the position you know like a lot of people said you know why do you hate them i said well i don't because i don't know them i said i've only seen the promo i'm not in a position to make a judgment on their body of work i haven't looked at it yet it's not fair to them and it's not fair to people who love golf so when I get to that assignment and I complete it, I'll come back and I'll say what I think. I tried to clarify that my criticism was very narrow. It was only about a 90-second piece. It was not a blanket judgment on them. It was not intended to discourage anybody in any way. It was just meant to point out this one tiny specific thing. And I don't mind that people think that I've lost my rocker or whatever, because generally those are the ones who are just getting to know me for the first time as I'm starting to get some traction lately. So that's fine because it keeps me on people's radar screens. You know, I don't lose followers. People, I'm adding people, not losing people. It's funny. I never even looked at that. I didn't even realize you, that the thing slid that you could even look at that until a few days ago. And somebody said, well, how many followers do you have? I said, I don't know. And they said, just, just swipe it. Said, oh. <laughs> so, you know, so I wasn't even paying attention to that stuff. So I'm just trying to be as interesting as I can, as provocative as I can, as entertaining as I can, and as amusing as I can. And to when somebody comes after me, even if it's a little unfair or even if they're a little uninformed, that's fine. I'll just I'm just going to deal with it. I deal with it honestly and try to be, have as much fun with it as I can as I'm doing. And I must tell you, it's extraordinarily relaxing to me. That's the only thing I wish people would understand more fully is I'm not angry even like a little bit. I am having an amusing, fun time doing this. I wouldn't bother otherwise. It couldn't be any less angry old man. Because it doesn't matter how old those guys are. It's just a piece of content. You know, content holds up. Good is good no matter what. You know, you see Brandel talking about... Yeah, really stupid comment the other day. Well, you know, why do they play Sinatra at Starbucks? Because it's nostalgia. So that's what you guys want. Nostalgia for courses from 1925. Well, that's actually the wrong word because Frank Sinatra is not nostalgia. Frank Sinatra's great music. It's timeless, like the Sistine Chapel ceiling that Michelangelo made. You know, like like George M. Cohan, who invented Broadway musical theater right around the turn of the century that became 1900. And, you know, and, and, you know, and the Gershwins and, and the Beatles. And, you know, so anything that's passed is not nostalgic. If it was great, it becomes timeless like the courses that we're trying to preserve. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very clear on, 
you know, what I think about things. I'm, I want to, you, you wrote a couple of interesting comments. I follow you, obviously. I think either you said this morning when I read it when I got up or yesterday, you, you just made it quite clear that, you know, we're talking about a very finite issue here. We're just talking about making sure that the equipment is actually regulated as it is in other sports. And so, um, I, I, so again, so with the, the no laying up guys, um, I wish them well. I hope they do great stuff. I, I wish we would get to know each other because I can, I can mentor people now, you know. You know, I'm the best actor of anybody who's ever done any of the work that I've ever done. I understand performance extremely well. It's a big part of my background. Acting's a big part of my background. And that's part of what you do when you're on camera. You you just doesn't fall out of the sky and you just start talking. It's a skill set. There's a number of things that you have to do well if you're going to be a successful person on camera. You can't just write and then just show up on camera. The skill sets are totally unrelated. Jaime Diaz was one of the great, great golf writers. Thoughtful, deep, took his time, sat alone in his room, worked through issues, came up with solutions. Now they've got him on television answering real quickly about today's issues. Well, that's not what he does. And he doesn't have the skill set to be on camera. And he doesn't look good on camera. And the camera doesn't like him. And he's not appealing and inviting. And therefore, you don't give him a chance to be informative. And they're asking him to do things that he's never done before. On camera is a whole different deal it's like being in a play you know you, you it's it, you know even though you don't get to rehearse you you have to rehearse in your head so that when it's time for your lines that you're delivering them and the guy in the last row is paying attention that's what performing on camera is about is that you capture everybody's attention it's just don't just show up and hope it works out and right now the no laying up guys are at the show up and hope it works out stage and I've written enough notes to talk about planning and how you think through shows and I've tried to provide some guideposts for them lately and of course they'll ignore it for a while and I would too if I was them because you know because I took a shot even though I think we're cool now but um, you know it's a different skill set and these guys don't have I you know I, I you can't fool me I mean I've seen the 90 second promo they're not actors they don't have training they've not done on camera stuff they didn't perform in high school plays they didn't do community theater so this is all brand new and it's just a shame that some of these younger people who are doing golf content don't go to the greatest golf content producer in the history of golf television which is me and so it saddens me that people don't know that they ought to call on me and Hopefully some folks will, because I'd like to be helpful, mentor a little bit, consult a little bit. You know, somebody wants to send me their video and say, what do you think, PK? I'll give you a, give you my answer. Actually, I got a few of those d- direct mails the other day, and some guy said, I'm starting a show. What are the requirements? And I wrote him this long note, and he wrote back. I printed it out. I'm putting it on the wall. And I said, okay, so now when you do the first one, send me the rough cut. Let me tell you what I think of the rough cut. So before. Before you actually show up at the tournament, let's make sure that you're doing all the right things to show your game. In this case, it's to show your video. So I'm getting a little bit of that right now, which is which I really like because, you know, I am older now and, you know, the, the, my palmiest days of content have been quite some time ago, but yet... Right now, I'm making some new golf shows, so I'm sure the no laying up crowd will be laying into me. 
Well, th- this brings up the the issue of, of media from the pull back the lens a little bit and where media is going. What you say makes perfect sense in the context of television the way you did it when you were on the Golf Channel. And if you're doing a studio show now and you're going to be on live camera, for instance. But there's there's definitely been a shift, and maybe it's a generational shift, but a content shift to moving things away from the live camera, the way from the studio camera, and doing what No Laying Up is doing, and producing shows on the run, on the road. There's a verite aspect to it, where maybe being having that acting quality and that sense of delivery that you've mastered is not important, or maybe the point is it's not as important anymore to the customer who's interested in that. Have we seen a, a shift away from television and production as you knew it to a new form, a new I, media that's consumed in a completely different way than people sitting in front of their televisions and watching a, a show as it's being broadcast? Well, yeah, well, certainly, you know, you, 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 you have a shift, and the shift is from traditional long-form television shows to shorter viewing appetites on handheld devices, which most people, including older people, are now watching content on. And so my, my first thought about that is, okay, so if people are going to watch content now on their phones and their iPads and handheld devices of any kind, I think they need shorter pieces of content. So I'm making some shows now they're only going to be 10 minutes each one i'm making three and they're only going to be 10 minutes now 10 minutes is tough for me because i you know i can speak for 20 before i get warmed up so 20 minutes in right now really we haven't even gotten anywhere (laughs) exactly so exactly so you know so the so it's very tricky to write a 10 minute or because you know you're trying to decide what to leave out as opposed to what to put in you know what your options are to put in but you know it's like okay how do i pick the best stuff and how do i make it relevant so i think the shift from traditional studio programming is not a function of of what viewers do or don't like i think it's a function of the way in which we now consume content so if I was going to do some television shows, then I would still do 30 or 60 minute shows. I'm good with that. But the shows that I'm going to do are going to be seen, you know, on more handheld devices. So my new rule is, okay, so it's going to be 10 minutes or shorter. You can still do a lot of great stuff in 10 minutes and you can do lots of 10 minute shows and you can do part ones and part twos that worked for the Godfather. So I could do that. So yes, the appetite has changed because the viewing uh, period is so much more brief now. The appetites are more brief for content. So the no laying up guys in terms of the uh, few things I saw that are just a couple of minutes, conceptually I'm on board with that. I know they've got got a 14 or 15 minute video about playing golf over in Scotland or Great Britain, I believe that is available that I haven't watched. And 13 is, you know, that's, that's a reasonable number, but you still have to nail it. So, I mean, you know, somebody like me is, you know, I'm pretty adaptable. I mean, I, you know, I, I did voiceovers and I was the voice of HBO sports. Then I did the golf channel. Then I did the radio. Then I did print interviews for golf magazine. I do a lot of radio. I do a lot of podcasts, you know, and I'm, I'm very much in tune with what's out there and who's doing what. And so I would say a couple of things in conclusion to your comment. One is I'm very unhappy with what I'm saying. 
I think the quality across the board of all programming, whether it's from a site, whether it's from television, whether it's from a Twitter account, or whether it's Facebook Live, is uniformly terrible. Pretty much everything I've seen is terrible. Everybody talks too long. They don't demonstrate soon enough. They don't pull video in soon enough. They're wearing the wrong colors. I mean, just just an extraordinary number of amateur errors because nobody has any training. And they all think you just show up and do it. It doesn't work that way. I mean, you know, would you go in and pretend you're a brain surgeon? You know, and, and then all of a sudden they hand you the tools and you go, well, wait, I'm not really. You know, so because there's no tools, when you show up on camera, people go, oh, well, I'll just do whatever I'm going to do. But it doesn't work that way. So what I'm disappointed in is the quality of what we're seeing. But I've got no problem with the idea ideas of what we're seeing. Things on the road are very cool. We did that 25 years ago at the Golf Channel. It's not exactly a new concept. This guy, uh, I can't remember his last first name, something Andrews, had a, just a, a charming you know, show that he used to go to different resorts and he would tell you about the golf and stuff and it was longer for him because it was television but you know going to golf courses and playing golf and showing videos not a new concept i mean you know shell's wonderful world of golf hello so you know so this is nothing new about what they're doing they're just trying to do it differently which is fine and they're doing it brief which is fine now they have to make the quality good i have to be able to be compelled by what I'm watching, so I'll keep watching it. If I don't, I'm not going to. So my issue is with the quality, not the format, not the intention, not the idea, doing stuff on the road. People have been doing it on the road for as long as television's existed, so there's nothing new about that. It's just going to be shorter now, and now it's for younger people. So, you know, how easy is it for me to go from doing an hour with Arnold Palmer or Tiger Woods on TV to doing a 10-minute show? It's nothing. It's just like changing clubs. You know, you don't hit driver, and I've got a six iron. It's, 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 it's a complete nothing in terms of the ease of the transition. That's just simply a decision you make. I'll make it shorter for shorter appetites. It's, it's no big thing. I guess what might be bad news for you is if the consumer and the customer isn't holding the content to a higher standard, it's not going to change. And we may be heading down this road where, and we've already, we're well down this road, you know, for 10 years, you people go on YouTube and, and sit there and, and sing a song on a keyboard and get 500,000 views on it. And it, they're marginally talented and the production is marginal. It wouldn't hold up to your standards, but it doesn't seem to matter to so many people. And, and the more substandard production content is put out there, it's it starts to saturate the market, and then people don't know any better. I mean, and that's that's the you know, road. That's the gonna, that's the problem with having high standards or a level of critique like you have, because it gets harder and harder to make that argument that somebody's doing it wrong when a million people are enjoying it. We're not going to fix that in two minutes. Don't worry about it. Remember. Before Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci were born, there was no Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. So the art was what the art was. 
then all of a sudden Michelangelo shows up and starts doing what he does and starts making incredible statues and takes 10 years to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and Leonardo da Vinci, arguably one of the greatest minds in the history of the world. And then when Michelangelo came along and Leonardo came along, everybody went, wow, this is really different. Okay, so this is the new standard. I mean, that other stuff was fine, but we, we didn't know it could be this good. That's my job. I'm Michelangelo, and I am Leonardo da Vinci, and I'm going to create new shows that are going to completely elevate the standard once again to the standard that I set 25 years ago that's been abandoned. Other people weren't able to duplicate it or copy it because I was the only person capable of doing that work. Only I had the skill and the artistry and the gifts to do that and the knowledge of the history and my ability to be with any famous person and just make them feel like they're Joe Schmo next door, which secretly they love. I'll give you an example. One day I was sitting with Arnold and uh, we we're in his workshop in Latrobe and we're sitting on these two tall stools. And it was a few months after the Golf Channel started, and he had just said to me, you know, we we all kind of see where this is going and that you're the one who's going to lead us and that sort of thing. And he's talking, he's telling, you know, he's kind of just telling me father stuff, and I was like his son. And he's unwrapping and unwrapping this leather grip on an iron, the old kind that wraps all the way up, and you unwrap it all the way down. So he, would, so he plays golf. He wraps all day, wraps it all the way up unwraps it all the way down. He's not doing anything. It's compulsive nonsense. But everybody else is so afraid of him. They go, I don't know what he's doing, but it's Arnold Palmer. You leave him alone. So I'm sitting with him in the in this little shop, and it's just the two of us. And now we're talking about girls. And I said, could you stop that? And he said, what? I said, stop unwrapping and wrapping the grip. You're not doing anything. He said, what are you talking about? I said, you're, in, you're, you're, stop it. I said, you're bothering me. I said, put the club down. I can't, I, I said, if I'm going to, and he just said to me, no one's ever spoken to me like this. I said, look, I said, if you and I are going to hang out, we're going to try to do this golf channel thing. The last thing I need to do is spend time with you and be annoyed. And he looked at me, said, I'm annoying you. And I said, yes, of course you're annoying me. And he laughed and he laughed and he laughed. That was the relationship with, that we had, and I was able to be that way with everybody. I was able to be the way with I was able to tease everybody, treated everybody normal. Arnold loved that I just treated him like Joe Schmo because everybody else did. You know, bow to the king and Mr. Palmer. I would never call him Mr. Seth, but Mr. Palmer is my friend who called people their friends by the name Mr. So. Nobody was able to do what I could do before, so I'm glad nobody tried to copy that. I know the Golf Channel did for five minutes, then they went, what are you kidding? And then, uh, so here we are now, and I have no competition. It's insane. There's not one good thing. So anything that I do is going to certainly be a million times better than the best thing that's out there now. So I'm just going to reset the standard. It just won't take me very long. As soon as people see what's, what's possible, and they see my content, and it starts to get spread around, I'm going to make everybody look just as bad as they are, and they're going to all have to up their games, and that's the whole idea. I want to pull everybody back up, but I can't do it if I can't demonstrate the the excellence that is possible in providing programming. So I'm going to bang out a few 10-minute shows. I'm going to show people what what's really possible and that 
you know, there, there's a new band that just came along, and it's called The Beatles, so you may not want to listen to Lawrence Welk and uh, Pat Boone from the 1950s, because <laughs> now we've got something new and better for you. So I have zero doubt that in two seconds I will completely change the landscape, and the million people who were used to the trash will now get used to looking at Michelangelo's ceiling, because it's going to be better. When can we experience this? I think before year end, I uh, I'm going to shoot uh, I'm going to shoot the stand ups. So next Tuesday, so it'll be me on camera. I'll do a little intro. Then I'm leading to something specific, and then come back and do again lead again to something specific. I'm going to do that three times. But the things I'm leading to will just knock your socks off. And so I'm going to do two shows like that. And then the third show is going to be more about where it will start. Golf is the only sport whose equipment is unregulated. So I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to talk about well, the golf courses. Then I'm going to talk about why is one organization allowed to set up the U.S. Open course when it's the only thing they do the whole year? You can't just do something once for the year and be good at it. Where's your expertise? You know, in 15 weeks, the tour has 14 tournaments. The USGA has had 14 tournaments in 14 years. I'm not counting the Women's Open and all that stuff because they don't pay attention to it, and they even screwed up the U.S. Women's Senior Setup. That was a disaster. You can't be good at something if you do it once a year. Sorry. So, so you got three little rants, you know, and I'll flesh them out, you know, and I'll get, you know, I'll, I'll be adding lots of, you know, lots of little flourishes. I remember Paul McCartney was talking about uh, the early days of the Beatles and when they were listening to music, and there's a song by Buddy Holly called "That'll Be the Day," and it starts off with just a few seconds of doodle 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 do 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 do, and then the song starts. So when the Beatles finally figured out the Buddy Holly intro. You know, they they knew they realized a lot of things. One, they'd actually figured out because it's a tricky little thing. And then the second thing they realized is, well, that's what makes songs so great. It's the little flourishes. It's the little things. It's the little details. And so in Beatles songs, that's why there's so much detail. The inspiration was things like Buddy Holly, that little intro to That'll Be the Day. It, it meant so much more for them than it meant to a casual listener because it applied to their craft and their future and their ability to explore and their ability to, to, to paint new kinds of musical pictures. So so it's the flourishes, you know, that become important. It's, you know, what are you showing after you speak? How interesting is that? How can you start the show at a 10 and keep it a 10 for the whole 10 minutes? I don't want it to drop down to an 8. So that's my personal challenge. But in terms of my feeling competitive against the competition, I don't really believe I have any, so I don't even like think about that at all. I know that's a crazy thing, but it, but my, my ego is particularly large and my, my comfort of my own skin is very large. And, and, and my awareness of my skill set is obviously acute. I know what I'm able to do and I know I can do it better than everybody else still, no question, no problem. And so I'm going to do that and I'm hoping everybody else checks it out and goes, eh, this is what it can be now. This is the guy I'm going to watch, and I hope everybody else ups their game. So I have no doubts that that's completely doable, and I can turn that around in a heartbeat. What is the and you're going I'm to address, trying to be as modest? I'm trying to be as modest as possible. Is this as modest as you can get? <laughs> as far as the, uh, your criticism of the of the the media is well taken, and I I happen to share your agree that that when I watch the Golf Channel, which I rarely do anymore. 
or I watch uh, television network coverage of a golf tournament or any even even online or or through social media coverage of it. So often I'm I'm just left. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like I've I've just been you know whipped into into a coma. What's missing? I know you're going to address some of this. Numb is is a good word. Numb is a good word. You're going to address some of this in your show. But, I mean, what is is missing? What could golf media in general do better? Is it just that we have so many voices out there and nobody's speaking honestly? There's no unvarnished opinion. Everything's glossed over and and handled and and catered to uh, a message that comes from the PGA Tour or from a club manufacturer. What What is missing? What could the major golf media do better? Well, a lot of things. First of all, there's a lot of young kids who are writing on social media who need to get their act together. And unfortunately, I just got so tired of trying to encourage them that I just finally blocked them. I mean, you know, take uh, there's a nice young boy, Ian Christer, works at Lynx Magazine. Nice young guy, bright guy, works hard. But the minute that the PGA ended and Tiger finished second, Ian sent out a tweet that said, I have Tiger top three for the Masters next year. And I said, that's eight months, three seasons, 250 days, and 25 tournaments away. He doesn't know how he's going to play tomorrow, let alone the first week of April. There's no such thing as forecasting. Just stop. And, and he did a couple of more dopey ones, and I got out of town. Jason Sobel's been in the business and so forth. So he missed most of the Tiger stuff. But the things that he writes are so preposterous. It's like, you know, he said Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods are the only ones to win two Masters by their 25th birthday. Jordan Spieth will be 25 next April, just saying. You know what? Don't say it. It's stupid. <laughs> then, he said, then he says, you know, nobody makes the game look easier than Dustin Johnson. Really? That double-jointed left wrist at the top of the swing, that looks easy to you? To time that through the strike? Are you crazy? The man's body is completely unusual. He has extremely long arms, even for his tall height. That, he doesn't make it look easy. He makes it look like something that it can't be done. I said, Sam Snead made it look easy. Ernie Els made it look easy. Bobby Jones made it look easy. Dustin Johnson makes it look hard. And then 200 people wrote to him and said to him, you're an idiot. And then he doubled down. And again, he repeated it. He just doesn't know anything. I mean, it's just uh, Shane Bacon writes, boy, sometimes I just forget how historically great Dustin Johnson really is, to which the answer is, well, guess what? He's not historically great. He's not even close to historically great. He's got one major championship. He's got 19 or 20 PGA Tour wins. When he wins five or seven major championships, then let's have a discussion. And half the stuff he's won is nonsense. The century in Hawaii doesn't count. That's not in anything. One of the historically great players. So they just aren't doing their homework. They're not reading the books that they're supposed to read. They're not, they're not reading the old-time articles they're supposed to read. They're not doing their homework. It's just, it's just trash. It's just one-sentence garbage. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, you know, yesterday they talked about Justin Rhodes is switching equipment. Who cares? I don't care what he paid before. I don't care what he plays now. It would never affect anything that I do. And why do I care what, what clubs he's going to choke with? What do I yeah, care about how he's going to back he into a turn? Yeah, he's going to hit snap hooks and slices into the last two greens. He's going to back into everything, and that's why his friends call him reverse now, because he backs into everything. <laughs> so, you know, it's all a bunch of nonsense. There's very, very 
little great writing. And Steve Eubanks has turned in his badge. Ron Syrak has turned in his badge. Jim Nugent has turned in his badge. They're just three-page shills now. They get paid by Titleist and some other folks and to say things that are completely outlandish. You know, Jim Nugent, I mean, you know, for God's sake, he's been a publisher for 25 years. He writes last week or two weeks ago. Well, the ball only increased a half a yard from 2016 to 2017. So what's the fuss? The fuss, moron, is that from 1993 to 2003, driving distance increased 10% on tour. That's 27 yards. Two reasons. Larger-headed driver in the early 90s, hot ball at the end of the decade. So there's 27 yards. So since then, let's say we've picked up a yard a year because of physical fitness, and the equipment is better. So now we're at 40. 40 doesn't work. So what do you do? You Every 90 days, the ball manufacturers say, well, it's our longest ball. Oh, really? Okay. Then let's go back a few tranches of 90 days until we come to the 300-yard ball that carries 300 yards under normal conditions by a professional at average tour swing speed. That's it. There's no R&D. They already have the ball. And they're going to sell more of them because there are going to be some nutters who are recreational players who want to play what the pros play. You want to play it? Who cares? Play anything you want that's legal. The pro ball, sure, live it up. And let the, and let the manufacturers keep making, making the drivers for everybody. And if that gets out of hand because the ball then it goes again too far in a few years, what do we do? boop a doop a doop a doop a doop We go back 90-day trenches until we get to the 300-yard ball again. It's not complicated. It's such a no-brainer. You want width. I mean – Hip high rough. What is Brandel thinking about? He's completely taken leave of his senses. Hip high rough. That's the most boring shot in golf, the five yard pitch out. Mrs. Dinkowitz just started taking lessons at my club. She could hit the five yard pitch out. So, what good is that? That's not even a golf shot. It's a nothing. It's like taking a drop from a lateral hazard. I want to see great recoveries if a guy misses his shot too much to the right or left. I want to see a really difficult angle and a really funky bunker to carry. And I want it done with a six or five iron, not with a lob wedge. doesn't count with a lob wedge. Only great players can hit great recovery shots. Mrs. Dorpowitz can't hit a great recovery shot, but she can hit the hip high one five yards into the fairway. It's all preposterous. I could go on forever on these things. Friends, I'd like to take a moment to talk very briefly about my sponsors. You. As you might know, I do this podcast because I'm deeply passionate about it, and I love architecture and golf courses, and I do it with absolutely no help from ZipRecruiter. <laughs> I also do it because I hope it brings you some small enjoyment and satisfaction. You can demonstrate that you enjoy listening and want to support this podcast by simply going to wherever you stream or download the podcast, search for Feed the Ball, and give it a star rating. And if you're particularly motivated, write a few comments. Better yet, introduce it to your friends, family, and other golf lovers you know. You can share links on Twitter, Facebook, or just encourage them to check it out. That's it. Let me know you're out there, be a part of it, and help broadcast the podcast. And now. Back to the Peter Kessler show. One of the most preposterous arguments that Brandel Chambly brings up is 
is if you roll back the ball or even bifurcate, it's going to rob companies of their intellectual property. I mean, that's just the most nonsensical argument. I mean, you're talking about multi-million, maybe even billion-dollar companies who all they do is R&D. They change their model every 18 months, and you're telling me that we're going to rip their intellectual property of the, away from them if we don't let them produce any kind of manu- manufactured club or ball that they want? They, they're changing it anyway. They're not going to lose anything. You're going to tell me people aren't are going to stop buying golf clubs because they can't buy something that doesn't even exist yet in the future. No, they're going to buy what's ever on the market. They're going to buy whatever balls they need because they went out and just lost a dozen balls at these golf courses that they go play. It's not going to hurt the manufacturing companies at all because that's what they do is make golf clubs. They'll figure out a way. They figured out a way to make clubs that the market wants for 50, 60, 80 years now. That's the worst argument for <laughs> against a rollback or a bifurcation that there could, you could possibly make. There's no such thing as what he said. There's just there's no such as like the tooth fairy. There's no such thing as any of that. It's just complete nonsense. The, 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 the important thing here is, though, the, the one nugget of gray cell that was functioning when he wrote that, that you can pull out of that is something that is important. But, of course, he completely missed it, as he always does. And, and, and that is that you want the manufacturers to stay in business. So... It's very important that we only focus on the ball. We don't want them to stop making new drivers. We don't want them to to stop exploring ways to make shafts that respond better to every level of golfer. Let them make their money. Let them make their equipment. Let them come out every 90 days if they want to with something new. Not a problem. The only thing that we want to address is the ball for 125 guys. That's it. It doesn't affect anybody else. It's not for the web.com tour. The other international tours want to to, to use the, the ball. Good for them. If they don't, good for them. I only care about the PGA Tour and the majors, dialing it back so that when Cam Champ's ball hits the ground, it hits at 300 and rolls out to 335 instead of landing at 340 and rolling out to 390. It's all we're talking about. It's just such not a big deal. And you don't have to change the courses. What other sport changes the stadium? I mean, Babe Ruth would be fine at home plate now at Yankee Stadium. Arthur Ashe would be cool at the U.S. Open. Uh, Martina would be fine at center court at Wimbledon. It's the same thing. And they adjust the tennis balls. Nobody even knows that. Different tournaments use different balls depending on the speed of the surface, depending on the humidity, depending on the weather. You know, the U.S. Open, the, the men's ball is heavier. It's bigger. It's got more fuzz on it. They don't even mention it on TV. Why? Because it's just the people who run the sport are just regulating the equipment. They don't make announcements. It's a tweak here. It's a tweak there. You know, you know, you don't even know the guy who runs the USTA. But, you know, you would think Mike Davis was a movie star at the USGA because all he does is make mistakes. Everything he does is wrong. He shouldn't be setting up golf courses. He's not in the golf course setup business, except he's like the guy, he's like uh, Jaime Diaz, decided to do television, but he didn't have the skill set. He's a corporate guy. He's never built a golf course. He's never participated in one. He's not an architect. He doesn't know anything about irrigation or moving dirt or anything. He doesn't, he doesn't know anything about it. And here he is going in years before and tinkering with the greatest courses in the history of the world based on what knowledge, based on what track record, based on what skill 
skill set have you ever shown the world that you have the ability to come to a U.S. Open course and make changes? You? Why don't you go in and, and, and mess around with Michelangelo's ceiling? You know, maybe you could paint God better. It's completely ridiculous. He's not equipped to do the job that he's assigned to himself. He's a corporate guy, and he's a successful politician. And yes, the USGA has a lot of bright guys, and yes, they go in. The real answer is, somebody said to me, the U.S. Open is going to be at Oakmont next year. How are you going to set it up, and you're in charge, Peter? First of all, the USGA doesn't even get to show up at the event. They're banned. So what do I do? I go up to Oakmont. I go sit down with their superintendent. You know he's got to be one of the best five superintendents in the business, or he wouldn't be at Oakmont. So I said, look, we're going to do the Open up, up here next year. And so... I'm just thinking, you know, how tough can we make it but still make it fair? Like, can you just take it like one step behind the 10 member guests that you run, like your hardest one? Maybe maybe set it up like tough day for four days and alternate the pins. And he'd go, oh, sure, we can do that. No problem. So tough but fair. Let the guys play the golf course. Let it yield to brilliant play. If somebody shoots two under a day, that's fine. But just let the super do it. They set up more tournaments at their own course a year then the USGA is going to set up there once every 10 years. So, of course, you let the super do it. Who else would you possibly have do it? The greens at Oakmont are faster for the member guest than they are for the U.S. Open. What does that tell you? It tells you the guy who manages the golf course knows how to manipulate it any way that we want to. How do we want to manipulate it? We don't. Make it fair. Make it hard. Remember, these are the best players in the world. Make it challenging, but let's make sure they have a good time, too. So obviously you're not going to start growing hack out rough and, 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 and planting trees. They just cut down 15,000. So the super at Oakmont gets it. So why isn't he just in charge? What could possibly be the, a better answer than that? Strangers from New Jersey who come to your court? Of course, you know nothing about the seasons or the weather or what happened in the spring with the rain and the sun and the wind. I mean, it's preposterous. You know, it's like, again, like just bringing somebody in and saying, hey, finish Michelangelo's ceiling. You, you, you know, here, take a brush and go up and see what happens. You just let the super do it. Or the USGA gets five guys from the PGA Tour who seem to every single week of the year for the entire history of the world set up the courses properly because nobody ever complains. So you know you've got it right. They know the guys hit the ball way too far, so they try to do some things they can to mitigate you know, unbridled distance without accuracy, but you can't do that. There's no, there's no such thing. And you know, that's where the hip high rough comes in, and that's preposterous. So you just make the equipment fit, and, and the USGA should then get together with the PGA Tour, and you go out together and you set up the course for the week. The tour does 14 tournaments in 14 weeks. The USGA has done 14 opens in 14 years. Who would you rather work with? Why do viewers watch professional golf? Is it, what drives ratings? Is it long drives? Is it for golf courses? Is it for particular personalities? Do they like to see birdies? Or is it they want to see a, a competition come down to the wire? Do they watch it for the drama? Well, first of all, you know, everybody does this chicks dig the long ball thing, except nobody knows how far it goes. I just get so hysterical when people say that because nobody knows. If you're at a golf tournament as a spectator and you're on the tee, 
first of all, you can't see the ball until it reaches its apex because the ball gets out so quickly now that you can't see it like you can see your own drive early on in its flight. So you can't even see it till it reaches its apex, and you can't see it where it lands, and you don't know how far it went. And if you stand in the ropes down in the landing area, well, Mrs. Dinklebottom could have hit the shot there because just a golf ball, you don't even see a golfer. If you sit behind the green, you know, all you do is see the ball eventually hit the green. You don't really ever see it in the air. So you don't have any idea. So even if you're at the driving range, you still, unless there's a marker and you can see that far, you don't know how far they're hitting it. And if you're watching on television, you don't know. Televised golf is the worst is, is the worst production in the history of sports. They haven't changed anything since 1958 when Frank Cherkinney invented televised golf. Not one of these bozos, not one of them. Tommy Roy's an idiot. Jack Graham is an idiot. Mark Loomis is an idiot. Uh, I mean, they're just a bunch of dunderheads. They don't know anything about anything. They don't know anything about storytelling. They don't know where the commercials should go. They don't understand that the blimp doesn't work. I would fire all but five announcers in all of golf. Say there's 40, I'd keep five, a couple of which are just on the edge, too. But I would keep five and get rid of 35. Who would you keep? It's the presentation that's so awful. Who would you keep? Well, I'll just tell you one, only because I just did a 12-hour interview with Alan Shipnock that he's writing for Golf.com, and I think this is in there, but my actual favorite person right now is Amanda Balionis because she gets it. I mean, she and I would get along really well. I understand her. I probably understand her better than anybody who's never met her before because I see exactly what she's doing. I know exactly what she's doing. I know exactly what she's thinking. I know exactly how everything that she's doing is fantastic. She gets it. She definitely was in high school plays or something. She, Or she's taught a class in yoga, which I know is an expertise of hers, but I know she's had, and I don't know this at all, but I'm telling you, she's had experiences talking in front of people in in some way because she's so darn good at it. So I, and I know they're not in her ear because they're too stupid to ask, tell her to ask the right questions and teach, and she's too smart to listen to them. So she's doing all her own stuff. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but I know that for a fact. I can see it. I can say, I know somebody's in somebody's ear and I know somebody's not. So what do you want? Amanda Balionis, who's a fantastic interviewer, who's a great sense of fun. And she's, and uh, the third thing is she's great looking as opposed to, Ooh, she's great looking and not a bad job. That's not what we want. We want to say, wow, what a professional. And by the way, boy, her boyfriend sure must be some lucky guy. So she gets it. Contrast that with Peter Costas. Shows up in a red wig that's sideways on his head, sweat dripping down his face, his huge belly, his shirt is soaked, and he says things like, they're so stupid, he's had all freaking week to think of three decent questions and he's there with the winner and you know and he says some really stupid ass thing and then he always concludes it with hey okay you better go up and sign your card there oh yeah like i'm gonna forget to sign my card you moron get him off my set so finally they did and they put this wonderful woman on she's 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 in my top five she's a keeper and uh, i'd love to think of other things for her to be able to do because i think her skill set that is much broader than even she knows. And someday I hope to meet her when I get a little more visible and she knows who I might be and talk to her a little bit about some of the possibilities that are actually exist for her. But, but okay, let's contrast it with Gary Koch. 
Why is he on television? He's wildly unattractive. He's incredibly boring. He's pasty. He's unattractive to look at, and he doesn't do any homework, and he doesn't ever prepare, and he isn't ready for anything that's going to happen, and he's never changed his routine. How many times can they that producer Tommy Roy again show us an eight-inch putt? The guy knocks it in. Gary Koch says, well, hold. Why can't they have a production meeting? And Tommy Roy says to him, you know, maybe today you'll say something like, and there's a nice par, and or there's a nice easy par. Boy, you sure like more of those on the tough holes. Or he remains at four under, but nicely hold from eight inches. Let me tell you what to do with that eight inches. You know, then he says stuff like, oh, he didn't need a double bogey there, to which I always say, oh, which is the double bogey hole today, actually? I, I forgot which is the double bogey hole. He's an idiot. He made his whole career career on three words. Think of it. He's been in the business 25 years, and one time he got a phrase right, better than most, better than most, better than most. Can you imagine building a whole career on five or six seconds of verbiage and that everything else that you've done should be flushed down the toilet twice, once for safety? I mean, that's how bad someone like, like Gary Koch is. And he happens to be a nice guy. But television, the only thing he should be doing has to do with television is occasionally replacing the battery in the remote for his wife. That's it. Everything else is everything else is out of bounds. That brings up another question that I wondered. It used to be the networks would have on-course commentators, people that followed different groups. They'd have you know, three or four of them maybe on a, on a weekend tournament. And now you you look at NBC and they cut to Gary Coke or they cut to Peter Jacobson and they're not on the course and they're not they're also not in a tower reporting on a specific hole which CBS used to do they'd have a guy in a tower who when the play came through the fifteenth hole you'd go to him because he'd been watching it all day these guys sit in a in a studio or in a off course somewhere in the dark looking at monitors reporting why do you need different people to do that unless you're on the course walking with the player why do you need guys in a studio more than one to report on what we're seeing that's 100 percent. that's 100 percent exactly accurate it's preposterous i remember watching a few weeks ago peter jacobson who couldn't be worse on television is sitting in a little booth and he's looking at the same TV screen that I'm looking at at home, and he's saying, I think this breaks a little to the left. He doesn't even have the information other than it looks like on TV the green might be sloped that way, the same way we look at it at home and go, yeah, it looks like it's going to go a little left, kind of. That's because they don't ever show you the greens properly, which is a whole other subject, which is if they knew how to film greens before rounds started so they could show contours from a worm's eye view, then when a guy's got a 40-footer and you're showing him, you can say, let's just take a look at what he actually sees, and then you show him hitting the putt. They really haven't figured that out since 1958. Nobody puts it. And I told a few producers, they look at me like I just got off the shuttle from Venus. These are stupid, stupid men who don't know anything about storytelling at all. I mean, I used to talk about this with Frank Turkanian all the time. You know, Frank and I loved each other. And when he came to Orlando, we would have dinner, and he just ripped everybody. I mean, he, you know, he thought he, he gave them secret bad names. And he said, you know, Tommy, you know, he said they're all stupid. He said every single one of them is just a technical guy who doesn't know anything about storytelling. And then he talked about himself and he said, that's why I'm so great. He 
said, because I understand how to put on the show and I understand storytelling. They don't know how to do either. He said, now look at you. He said, you, he said, if I had been hired when the golf channel started, you would have had a staff of 10 or 12 people to assist you in these shows. But I know you do everything alone. And I know why, because you do everything better than anybody else can do any one of the things. So just easier for you to do them yourself. And he said, so that's why I like you because I understand how busy your brain is and I understand how it works. And he said, and you can do something that I can't do. He said, I can get all the stuff ready for the on camera. He said, but he said, I don't go on camera. He said, you do everything behind the camera and then you go on camera. So he used to ask me all kinds of questions about that. Now that with Sean Connery, I had the exact opposite relationship. Sean understood the on-camera part. He totally understood I was acting, but he didn't understand how I could do both things. He didn't understand how I could do all the stuff behind the camera, then go to the other side and deliver. So the interesting thing to him was the technical preparation, and the interesting thing to Frank was being was the on-camera part. So talking to the two of them was one of the highlights of my life. But Frank thought that the television golf production was very, very disappointing. I mean, the last time I saw Frank's probably 13 years ago, we had dinner here in Orlando and he was just so upset. You know, he had lost his job 10 years earlier and, and why did he, why don't you put him into the hall of fame? When somebody reaches the age, when they've done the body of work that isn't related to winning majors, you put them in. Peggy Kirkbell was done doing what she was going to do at 70, put her in. She could have enjoyed it for 25 years. Frank Jerkinian was certainly done by 2000. We knew he wasn't coming back. Put him in. He would have enjoyed the last 11 years. He would have gone to the ceremony. The people who run the Hall of Fame are basically some of the stupidest people that ever walked the face of the earth. And the committee doesn't pay any attention to anything. You know, Curtis Strange wrote, you know, we put Peggy in the Hall. I said, no, Peggy's actually in heaven right now. And he wrote back, no, she's thrilled. And I said, well, when you called her up there, I mean, it's like, <laughs> get with the program here. So, you know, so, so part of it is just the horror of the of the golf production, the the onslaught of the commercials, the bad timing of them, the the use of the blimp, the terrible announcers, the one foot putts, the you know this new red line is fine, but use it a little bit more or something. But the whole thing about the chicks dig the long ball. It's nonsense. Nobody knows how long it's going. Right. Well, we were going to get into some of these uh, kind of a year-end review, think about the year-end golf, what we learned. We're probably not going to have time to get into all that, but you mentioned the Hall of Fame, and I've heard you talk about this uh, a week or two ago on another show that you did, about the, how the criteria is so random, and we've, we've really lowered the bar of what it takes to be considered for the Hall of Fame. And part of that's because if you you know, you, you suggested, you know, you would have, if you were the king, you'd have a baseline of like five majors and some other criteria, just to even be considered to get right. into the hall. And, the, you know, that's an interesting thing. The, the downside of that is you might have to wait a long time before you ever inducted a new, anybody new into it, at least, a, at least from who is a player. And which is fine. You know, we wait, we wait 35, 40 years for a triple crown winner. We know one's going to come eventually, but when it happens, it happens. But uh, so I wanted to take this time now to kind of think about the Hall of Fame and in that context of, of if you had that criteria that you wanted, handicap the current generation of players and who you think could have a Hall of Fame potential level career. Uh, Rory could if he can figure out what he's doing here. I mean, the Brooks Kepka thing to me is, you know, put him in the Hall of Fame if he retired tomorrow. He had a great 18 months. That's not a career. It's a body of work, dude. So it's five majors, 
to get into the World Golf Hall of Fame. But if you didn't get to play in all four majors in your prime, then we'll let you have four. So that's how we get old and young Tom Morris in there, because those are the two guys who needed to get in at four, and nobody else does need to get in at four. Five or more is the standard. But I also want that to be part of a body of work. You know that, And obviously it is, because you don't win five majors if you probably haven't won 15 or 25 other things. You don't just win the majors. Unless you're Bobby Jones, you don't play in other stuff, and when you do, you beat the pros by 13 shots. So, you know, so, you know the, the majors are the key thing. And then in terms of people who've given to the game, once they've finished the giving – and we know that they're at an age where future accomplishments aren't necessary anymore. You put them in. Charles Blair McDonald, complete no-brainer. I mean, if the, if the Hall had been there, of course. You know, once he did National, once he did Lido, and he did a cut mid-ocean, he's in. Father of American golf. You don't wait till he's dead. For God's sake. Frank Cherkinian, same thing. Peg, Peggy Kirkbell, same thing that we just mentioned. You put them in so they can enjoy it. There's no ceremony. There's no TV there's no, there's no live with it for the rest of your life. I mean, they just, I, I said to Curtis, you should resign from the committee tonight. I said, you totally don't understand the mission. I don't care what he thinks. I mean, you know, he, know, he deep in his heart, he knows I'm on the money most. And that's the other thing. When people really look at my stuff and they think about the things that I say, and even though I act like a wild man, if they take a close look at what I'm actually saying and the work that I've done, and, you know, there's no question I've done more better media work and more things than anybody who's ever done any of them, and I'm proud of that. And so, you know, so yes, so the Hall of Fame, I mean, you know, it's all because they want to have a ceremony. Everybody that should be in the Hall of Fame is already in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I wouldn't put anybody in now. Let's say everybody retired now, obviously Tiger and Phil, but, you know, let's say everybody else retired now who's on tour, I have no Hall of Famers. None. No. Nobody. So do you think Rory has the best chance to hit that five major mark, or is there, you know, what do you, you know, Jordan's got three, Dustin? I know, it's tricky. Yeah, well, Dustin's got one, and he's in his mid-30s, which is usually the time you're kind of winding that down. And I don't know how good his head is for closing out major championships. You know, that's why it takes, you know, that's why it's so many skills. You know, that idiot E. Michael Johnson at Golf Digest said he watches golf for physical superiority. It's not offensive linemen. What about touch and tempo and rhythm and course management and half shots and partial shots and thinking and heart, the ability to par the last four holes when you need to? Physical superiority. See, he's one of those guys who's pretending that the ball goes as far as it goes because the guys are better athletes. Who might that be? Is it Siwoo Kim? Is it Justin Thomas? Is it Brian Harmon? Is it Patrick Reed? Who are they talking about? There's two players, Brooks and DJ. Everybody else is in good shape. Everybody else was always in good shape. You don't win golf tournaments if you're not in good shape. God's sake, Arnold was like a rock. Gary Player was like a rock. Jack played in a basketball league several nights a week. He played tennis in his prime. These guys, Sam Snead, Manny. I mean, he was he swam, he ran. I mean, these guys, you don't win golf tournaments if you aren't in good shape. Sure, the methodology is better now. Sure, you know, there's more specific golf exercises, whatever. But the great players have always been in great shape. Don't tell me that this is about something to do with, you know, the, the shape that these guys 
Jets are in. Yeah, they're all in good shape, and throughout history, the players that needed to be in whatever shape they needed to be to play were in that shape. Bobby Jones didn't exactly work out, but he played a lot of golf, and he felt that walking was a great exercise, which it is, and he never had problem with his sequence. He never had problem with his tempo. He never had problem with his swing. Never had problem with his ability to play all the rounds that you need to play in, in full gear. So whatever whatever amount of athletic readiness Bobby Jones was required to have to play the kind of golf he did, he did. But did he do the stuff the guys do today? No. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It's the equipment. It's just such a no-brainer. So I'm always trying to think, and I, and I rely on guys like you who know a lot more about it than I do, to compare eras and figure out why or what we're really looking at. Are we looking at deeper fields now? We're definitely not, I agree, we're not looking at better athletes. I don't buy that argument at all. But, there are, but does technology enable more people to win easier than it did in 1975? Are, is, are the fields truly deeper? Is it easier to win now, or is it, was it easier to win in 1975? I don't think anything's really changed. I think that, you know, there's actually it may be easier to win now because we don't really have other than Tiger and Phil's now a little past it in my view. We don't have any what I would call all-time great players playing now. We have some good players and everything, and Rory certainly, you know, has, has made a bit of a mark, and Jordan's on his way. But, I mean, for example, I think Jordan's a nutter. I mean, you know, you you know, he was much more interesting two or three years ago when he just kind of played golf and made his putts. And now it's all crazy with, you know, this endless looking of these crazy notebooks in the golf course and, you know, and all of these crazy decisions that he makes under pressure. And Michael Greller is not helping him at critical moments. He never should have gone down to the drop area at the 12th at Augusta. You don't play from there. You just hit another tee shot. You shouldn't have hit the three-wood at Carnoustie this year. I played that course 20 times. From where he was with a cuppy downhill side hill lie, you got Gorse right, you got OB left, you got water in front of you. You hit eight iron. I've played it 20 times. There's nowhere, there's nowhere to go with the three wood. And I was talking to somebody on the phone when he decided on the three wood, and I said, I'll bet you he makes either an eight or a seven, and I'll give you three to one odds if he doesn't make six or more. The person said yes, of course, he made eight. He played the hole. I know where he was. There was no shot. There's nothing. It didn't matter. It didn't make any difference. It was crazy. So his thinking is not good in critical situations. And I've also noticed that his grip, to me, appears to get weaker throughout the round of golf. And so if your left hand keeps moving to the left, eventually you're not going to be able to hinge correctly at the top of your swing, which is a natural action, not something you plan on or do. But if you can't hinge on full shots, you lose control. And if your grip gets too weak, you're going to hit some short balls to the right. It's just the way the golf swing works. So I don't know. I think the jury is out on him. And the jury certainly, you know, I mean, Justin Rose, what is the deal with that? What is the deal with that? He's not even one of the better players of the time. What does he have, 10 wins in a major? He's in his 40s. You know, people are going Hall of Fame. Not in, He may be in his local town or something, but Hall of Fame. Well, he's not even close. He's not, he's not even on the list of people for us to talk about in the meeting. He's not on the list. He's not one of the best players of his time. He is not an all-time player. He's a decent player. He's a choker. He backs into stuff. 
He's not a good closer. He's got one major on a tricked-up golf course, and that was really a disaster, Mary. And what they did to that to manipulate that golf course was disgraceful. And so now Justin Rose, Hall of Fame, what are you talking about? Everybody who's supposed to be in is in. You just get rid of the damn committee and leave the thing to me, and I'll let you know if there's somebody else who ought to be in. And I can do that in two minutes' time per day. And I can also rewrite the rules in an hour on a single sheet of paper if somebody give me the opportunity. What's going on with these new rules? Completely crazy. So, anyway, the deep fields thing. I haven't forgotten the question. There is no such thing as deep. The top 20 players don't give a damn about anybody except the top 20 players. Sure, Charles Cootie's going to win sometimes. Hugh Kim is going to win sometimes. Brian Harmon is going to win sometimes. Nobody cares. It's just the way golf works because you, every week, three guys that basically we never heard of are probably going to have their best 72 holes that they ever had. And that's when Siwoo Kim wins because it was so good that week that it was better than the good players. So so that's why a guy in the field will occasionally win because he plays the best four rounds of his life. It just happens sometimes. But the top 20 guys, they don't care about any of that. Chad Nicholas didn't think about anybody. He didn't think about anybody. I mean, to to him, he treated Arnold like I did. Arnold was just another guy to him. He was just another guy. It was not a big deal. Just another guy in Jack's way. It was just another guy for me to have a relationship and interview on TV and be great. But just another guy. So... There were, I, in my view, many more great players in Jack and Arnold's area. You know, guys with five majors, six majors, seven majors, eight majors, nine majors. I mean, it's like a little legitimate track records. That today, this is all nonsense. All these guys with one. Remember when Jason Day was going to be the best player in the world two years ago? You know, I mean, and then Dustin Johnson was going to be the best player. I mean, it's insane. Stop saying it. Let it play out like a movie. Stop guessing the ending. Don't predict scores. There's no such thing as deep fields. There's only such thing as the best players in the world. And some guys, sometimes the guys in the field will win. And partially now it's because the equipment is so much easier. So more guys in the field can win than maybe could in Arnold and Jack's time. Because you really had to be able to be a super player to be able to win. That The equipment was not forgiving. And, and on a relative basis. But we didn't know that then. We thought this is what we have and it's great. You know, and now, so now there's something different. But deep fields, ugh, stop. <laughs> it's interesting to think that, you know, Phil is the last guy to get five. He's in with five right now. How long, it's interesting right. to think, how long are we going to go before somebody else gets to five? I mean, it could be, what could be next right. year? Rory, Rory could pop Rory any time. But, and, you well, know, I Jordan mean, Brooks are three. But yeah, it, it, could, it also could go well, another I mean, decade. Well, I don't think so. I, I think that based on where you're trending right now, you look for Rory to pick one up in the next two or three years to get to five. And if Jordan can see a good psychiatrist, I think he, sir, you know, he's just a kid. He's in his early mid-20s. He can certainly get to five. Um, Brooks could certainly get to five. if He did three in 15 minutes. So you have a number of guys you can get to five, but five's the number. One is nonsense. You don't get to be the number one player in the world with one major from five years ago. Justin had won two times in three years before he shot a thousand and they gave him a check for ten million and he was proud of himself for choking his brains out all over the golf course. It was pathetic. <laughs> Here's something I've wanted to ask you for a long time. I've heard you say this in the past before. When you were on golf golf channel and golf talk live, you once I believe you said, and you can correct me if I have this wrong, but you said when you 
interviewed p- people. You did so much research. You knew what the answer was going to be, what was going to come out of their mouth before they said it, it or, or, or at least over the course of a show. And I, I always found that fascinating right. as, as I talk to people on, on this podcast. Did you ever, though, try to elicit something from them through a course of questions that you didn't know they were going to say, try to take them someplace that you might not even know existed? You know, you mentioned uh, the Beatles a little while ago, and I, I just read this interview with Paul McCartney. He'd been doing some press over the last few months. And in a, in a GQ story, over the course of this multi-day interview with the interviewer, the interviewer got, they got to this place where Paul McCartney <laughs> relayed this story that I don't think had ever been heard before about he and John when they were teenagers with some other guys, and it was kind of a dark room or whatever, and they all started masturbating together in the dark. And it just kind of came out. And I know the interviewer had no idea that that existed, so he couldn't have purposely got Paul McCartney to go there. But you never know what's going to come out. Did you ever set up a situation where you said, I'm going to try to get this subject to go someplace that I don't even know where it's going to end up, but it but it could be good if we get there? Well, it's not really possible because, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Sean Connery about this one day, and he understood me very well. And we were just sitting alone at a table one morning drinking coffee, and he said, he said, you know, I know all your secrets, right? And I said, and I'm sure you've guessed a few. And he said, I know how your shows work out perfectly in terms of the time. And I said, okay, how? And he said, because you know exactly what everybody's going to say. You know exactly what they're going to say. You know how long they're going to take to say it. You already know if you're going to do a follow-up. You already knew if they're going to add some, leave your room for something, if they come up with an additional answer within their answer that you didn't expect. But I'm guessing probably you've never been fooled. And he said, remember, he said, at least I had Goldfinger and Pussy Galore. He said, you had to do it with Larry freaking Ziegler. <laughs> and he looked at this whole group of guys at the table and he said, you, you, he used a lot of bad words, called them all a lot of bad words. He said, you guys try that on live, no rehearsal, a boring golfer, and you make an hour of fascinating television. Good luck. That's why he's the best in the world. So I, I knew there was, you know, if it had been a Paul McCartney, uh, and I would have done a much better job with the interview than the interviewer because I know much more about Paul McCartney. I know as much about Paul McCartney almost as I do about Tiger and Jack and all those guys. He's my idol. My daughter thinks I'd make out with him if I'd had the chance. And I've seen seen him 40 times. Um, I listen to his music every single day. Uh, a lot of things that he did, I tried to copy in my own way. I know that... It was really important to to Paul and John to to make sure that every song was really different than every other song. You know, a lot of other bands had songs that they just kept trying to repeat the formula and stuff. And over the long term, that's not going to work. You you need to to have different songs um, that do different things that are all equally exciting and fall into the genre. And so he said they tried really hard to make each song different. And I thought, you know. I'm definitely going to do that with my TV shows because, you know, I don't want to do the same thing every week. And I remember my producer one day said I came into his office and I was upset, which was very rare. And he said, what's the matter? And I said, I feel like I have to ask a question that I once asked like a hundred shows ago to somebody. And he said, so? And I said, well, I don't like repeating myself. And he said, it was a hundred shows ago. And I said, I know, but and he said, just, just ask it. It's okay. It's okay. And I did. 
and I did, and it worked out fine. But that's how seriously I took never repeat myself with anything ever. And those shows really didn't have very much to do with golf. I mean, if people actually look at them, there was nothing about the seven iron the guy hit the day before. I didn't do anything like that. I wanted these shows to be timeless. I wanted them to be evergreen so that they were as good today as they were then. So if you're talking about a seven iron the guy hit the week before in Boston at some dopey tournament, well, that's not going to have a shelf life. So I talked about family and relationships and things, you know, where, and that's why the shows worked because nobody had ever asked them about other stuff. They'd only asked them about the seven iron. So I had to figure out what they'd say about the other stuff, but that was part of my homework. And I always got it right all 1300 times pretty much. Yeah. Do you think you'd have an easier or more difficult time or the same, if you had the same job with uh, current younger players, the guys that are, that are on the tour now and who would be the subjects that you would interview? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a lot tougher, Derek. I, I mean, I just don't see a lot of interesting personalities out there. Now, we used to have a running joke at the Golf Channel where I would say to my producer, Lee Siegel, I said, who we got next Monday? And he would say so-and-so. And I'd go, seriously? i go, guy is so boring. And Lee would just look at me and go, you'll make him interesting. And that was literally our mantra was, no matter what, uh, Peter will make him interesting. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And so that was the great challenge of the job because, as Sean said, he had Goldfinger and I had Larry Ziegler try to make that work. Yeah. But it does seem like players now, at least over the, in this current generation, going back 20 years maybe, they're so much more guarded. There's so many more layers around them with agents and, and swing coaches. Uh, yeah, I get through that in a heart. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do. But dude, is there I, anything... I don't, I don't, there, there's no but base. also think about like the, the upbringing these guys have. If you're, if you're interviewing a, a guy who's 28 years old and Think about his experience, where he's come from. It's probably going to be so much similar to every other guy who's 28 years old. The guys that you were interviewing, many of them, they had diverse backgrounds. They didn't all come through college. They didn't have swing coaches. They came up through the different types of hardships. They're, I'll make them interesting. Yeah. Not a problem. You know, I've interviewed like 12,000 people. They have not all been people that you would really want to interview because they weren't interesting before I showed up. But when I was done... They were fascinating. That's my job. That's my gift. That's what I know how to do better than anybody else who's ever done it anywhere. Well, that's I don't care I mean, if you're talking about Barbara, Barbara Walters, Barbara Walters, or Mike Wallace, or anybody else who's ever talked to people on a camera. I did it better. I get it. Remember, they had 9,000 people writing those shows, and they were taped, and they were edited, and meetings, and should we ask this, and should we do that? I did the whole thing in my head, and I showed up and just banged it out. I would have no problem with any of them. Yes, they're tougher subjects. Yes, they don't have the experience. Yes, they didn't have all the hard knocks. Yes, they all came from sc through school, so their bios are very similar in many ways. There's no question you're exactly right. But that's my job is find, find the secret. Find the secret opening. There used to be a show when I was on TV where they had these two lock boxes and then there'd be like a thousand keys and each or two people would have to just keep trying keys so they got the right one and so i don't have to try a thousand i can sit down and immediately decide which is the key and i and i know i'm the only one who will figure it out and i will open the little door and i will take our people places they've never been before not a problem that's what i do i just want to have the opportunity to do it again you know, my, my my janet said to me recently you know 
she said, you know, you really got to be on camera again. And I said, you know, and we were just kidding around. And I said, but honey, I invented the golf club and I did the radio shows and all those interviews and all this stuff. And, you know, I said, you know, I've done a lot of stuff. She said, that's all. She said, whatever. She said, you could do that stuff in your sleep. She said, you don't even like that stuff. You just did it because you just keeps you in the game. She said, just get on camera. She said, young, there's a lot of people who haven't seen you. She said, what's that story about that baseball player? And I said, oh, that, that Joe DiMaggio was playing for the Yankees and towards the end of his career, you know, even when he was getting older, he would try as hard as he could. And they said, why do you try so hard, Joe? And he goes, well, there might be somebody in the stands who's never seen me play. Well, that's how I feel. Now there's people who haven't seen me play, so I need to show up, and I need to show up with you know, something that will pass everybody's expert expectations and that it would be so good that even I would watch it. You know, remember, because it's not my job to watch it. It's my job to deliver it. I was talking to Sean Connery about it. Somebody said to him, do you watch all your movies? And he looked at me like, what is this guy, an idiot? And the guy said, you don't watch him? And he said, no. He said, that's not my job. He said, my job is to do the performance. I don't have to go then watch myself. He said, I bet Peter doesn't watch himself. I said, I said, I watched a little bit at first just to be sure that I was actually doing the things that I thought I was doing. But once I saw that I was, I never watched anything ever again. And the guy looked at both of us like, wow. And then I was hanging out with Michael Douglas at Carnoustie because we were playing the Dunhill Links and it was raining. And uh, so we went outside with an umbrella so he could sign autographs. And some guy had a poster of this movie he did called Black Rain. And he got he went, God, I love that movie. I said, you love that movie? He said, yeah. I said, in what way? You loved doing it or you like it as a viewer? And he said, well, I really like doing it. He said, but I love to watch it. I said, you watch you? He said, you are one sick boy. <laughs> so we got along fantastic. I loved him and still do. Um, but... Yeah, it's 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 that's the job. You, you take whatever you got, and you, you you do the best you can with it. You get a piece of marble and you chip away until you expose the figure that's in there. And you know, whatever that marble was, that's what you have to deal with. Find find the figure, Just get into the key, figure out the code. That's my job. I know you saw this on Twitter because you commented on it, but it was a picture of. Jack Nicholas and Barbara, and they're standing with this older, kind of handsome guy, but clearly older. It turns out it's Roger Daltrey, and it was kind of funny how you poked Jack and about how he probably didn't even know any of any song by the Who. <laughs> and and Roger Daltrey's been making the rounds. He's got a book coming out, and I heard him on a another podcast talk for about an hour. Really interesting, smart guy with this sharp, sharp memory. Where does the Who stand in the history of great rock and roll bands? Do you slot them in at number three, right behind the Stones? No, definitely, definitely not. Um, I thought Tommy was a terrible album. I thought Quadrophenia was terrible. I thought the concept of Tommy was just flat-out stupid and <laughs> deaf, dumb, and blind boy who plays pinball. I mean, I th thought it was stupid then. I think it's stupid now. I have to agree there were three or four. There, there were three or four good songs on Tommy, you know, right. that were you know particularly attractive and have stood the test of time, but... Roger Daltrey basically had no range. He was a terrible stage performer. <laughs> they did do a few dozen, few dozen really good songs, but there you can't speak about them in the same breath with the Beatles. And I don't speak of the Stones in the same breath with the Beatles. You get the Beatles first, and you got a whole bunch of other bands. And you know, you got Jimi Hendrix is very high on that list. Uh, the early, the first couple of Led Zeppelin albums are high on that list. Uh, Elvis is high on that list. Uh, Mountain John is on that list. The Eagles are on that list. Uh, not all their stuff, but a certain amount. 
Um, I'm probably think, miss, missing a few bands, but you know, to me, people like Dion uh, Demucci, you know, saying "Run Around Sue" and and "The Wanderer" and stuff like that, to me, were more important than The Who, and I liked their stuff better. The Who were fine; their early hits were really cool, but they tended to kind of do the same thing over and over again, where the Beatles were better at mixing it up, and certainly the Beatles concept albums, you know, made the you know, the Who's concept albums look like the garbage that they were and are. And, and you know, the, just the fact that they could even have a play about it and that so many people could be so stupid as to think a duff, dumb and blind boy playing pinball would be a concept that would be interesting other than you smoked a joint and you had an idea for a second, which you immediately dismissed from the effect of the drug. So, no, the Who were definitely not in my top three. They're for sure not in my top ten, probably. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, you know, it's very interesting, too, you know, you think about John Lennon, for example, who I spent a good chunk of time with one night in 1974, and I was thinking about him the other day, and somebody said to me, you're a genius, and he said, well, if there is such a thing, I probably am, he said, but if there isn't such a thing, I don't really care, you know, and then you think about John Lennon's career, he only produced 15 hours of music, his career was 15 hours of music 10 with the Beatles right you got 13 studio albums that's about you know and forget the outside covers of the BBC stuff but you know the 13 albums that's about 10 hours you know another 5 from John another 10 or 15 from Paul so that's 20 or 25 0 from Ringo as the luckiest man who ever lived I don't know why they put his post Beatles songs on the Beatles channel it really pisses me off he's not a good singer the songs are stupid they're well produced he just you know he's just riding the coattails yeah, he's terrible and I don't like George Harrison's on his work at all I mean, My Sweet Lord isn't even his song. He stole it. Song's called He's So Fine by the Chiffons. He had to pay millions of dollars in a court. First time I heard that song, I went, that's He's So Fine. And the next thing I knew, there was a lawsuit. So, um, and I didn't like any of his stuff after. I thought it was very self-indulgent and, and very overproduced. And it was just having too many guys on the album. And so, no, I would not rank the hoot near the top of my list. It's kind of an interesting... And Jack never heard of them. Jack never heard of the band. I'm not saying he doesn't know their songs. I'm saying he's not aware that they existed. I promise you. Not <laughs> a chance. I know Jack. I know. I'm friends with Jack. He wouldn't know what the who was if you hit him over the head with the album. It's a it's kind of a I don't even want to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame which doesn't exist to me, but it's kind of an interesting making a parallel with the with the Golf Hall of Fame. If you if you had a true like the Peter Kessler Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like what's the criteria to get in? Like how do you look at different bands? What's the measurement? Some are obvious. The Stones and the Beatles get in. You like the Eagles, they'd be borderline for me. But like how do you like look at a band like The Doors? Their body of work is amazing, but it's very it's very finite. It's very short. Do you give points for longevity? Where you know, like, so that there were the who might get in just on perseverance, just on you know the entire body of work. What about Pink Floyd? You know, it's how do you how do you evaluate these these bands? There's parallels to the Golf Hall of Fame since there are no real standards. I would do exactly the opposite. I'd pretty much let everybody in because. You know, it, it, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a, a popularity contest. Okay, yeah, the Beatles won the most majors for sure, and the Stones are up there, and the Who won a few majors, and so you got the Jimi Hendrix won a bunch of majors. So you got a lot of people who won major championships, but it's but also you have some people who may not have won majors, but consistently were great tournament winners. So you know, in my view, anybody who was really popular—I mean, even like Sly and the Stone, you know, Family Stone—I mean. 
you know, now he was an amazing drug addict, and he had all sorts of personal problems, but they sure had five or seven, you know, Hot Fun in the Summertime is one of the really great all-time rock and roll songs. So, to me, longevity doesn't matter much. Um, it's just the quality of your input. Um, for sure, if you had, you know, two or more great albums, you're under consideration. It didn't have to be 10 albums or 13 like the Beatles. So, you know, so obviously to me, Elvis is in, Dion is in, Ricky Nelson is in, Chuck Berry is in, Jerry Lee Lewis is in, the Four Seasons are in, the Beach Boys are in. Uh, so that's all pre Beatles stuff, right? Everything that I just mentioned is all pre-Beatles. So those groups, all those people are in. I mean, these, you know, these are some of the, you know, great pioneers of rock and roll and, and produce some of the really great music. Now, Ricky Nelson didn't write his stuff, but I used to watch his TV show every week because at the end he'd finish with a song. I was a big fan of Ricky Nelson and I was a big fan of Dion. I play the Wanderer on my guitar all the time. And, uh, and I actually, I once met Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys who passed away in a tragic accident, but we met by accident one day and he invited me over to his house and I played him little deuce coop on a guitar at his house, which is of course a Beach Boys song, which I know cold. And he started to play the drums and sang along with me on the chorus to little deuce coop. So that was a fun hour. So, yeah, pretty much then I everybody who has a has a pretty decent sized fan base, that's the criteria. You got the you got the fan base you're in. I don't have to like your music so much, you know, but certainly ELO gets in. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of folks and it seems like they're slow to get everybody in where the Hall of Fame is in a rush to put anybody in who ever thought about singing a song. So they've got it completely the opposite. You know, each year the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tries to put in popular people that were popular with other people, and the Golf World Hall of Fame just wants to put in names of people you've heard of so they can have a ceremony. It's just it's all silly. All right, your house is burning down. You can only grab three records. What are the top three Beatles records you're going to take with you? Um, I would take, uh, the volume one of, uh, the mono hits from the early days, because that red, covers, oh, the red record. Hand and she loves you, so there's a lot of stuff on there, and then I would probably take the White Album and Abbey Road, and with great regret, leaving every other one behind, particularly Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Peppers, you know, Rubber Soul, Revolver. I mean, every single one was great. But if I have the mono hits, Volume 1, then I got the early stuff. Right. And if I've got the White Album, I've got the full range. And then if I've got Abbey Road, then I have the best single side, arguably, that was ever made in rock and roll, side, side 2. And um, so those would be my three. If I had to take three, I would take. Yeah, I'm with you on Abbey Road, for sure. The White Album is a... <laughs> you have to kind of... Don't you have to... You have to really want that one, right? I mean, there's some, there's so much variety and, and and so many misses on that album too. You may not think so, but it's it's kind of a mess for me. I can't think of one song that I don't like a lot. I can't think of any anything that I don't like. I know I know a lot of people don't like. Why don't we do it in the road? Seems like a throwaway. Not a throwaway, you know. Um, 
you know, to me, I mean, you know, from back in the USSR and Martha Maidea, you know, a lot of people don't like Little Piggies. Now, isn't one of their favorite songs. It's still a really good song. You got While My Guitar Gently Weeps on there. You have Happiness is a Warm Gun, which may be the best song on the album. <clears throat> you know, they probably did close to 70 takes of Happiness is a Warm Gun before they agreed on one because, you know, it's got five or six parts to it. It's a very complicated song. And they ultimately laid it down live um, and picked like take 65 or 68 or something like that. But to me, that album is is just a wonder. I I pretty much like everything about it. I don't like every song equally, but there's so much on it and at the time people said kind of what you're saying now which is you guys could have just made one ridiculously great album and got rid of the lesser pieces but they didn't feel that way about it i don't feel that way about it um and i listened to that album very very religiously um and, and i watch uh you know my wife on a saturday night knows like it's 10 o'clock, there's a really good chance that I'm watching Paul McCartney's Wings Tour Over America Rock Show 1976 concert for the 4,000th time. And uh, But no, yeah, no, the White Album to me totally stands up, but I understand what you're saying, what other people say about some of the things being either different and therefore not as good as their different stuff prior was. I, I get it. I, I, get, I, I get the criticism. I just, I'm just not quite with it. Peter, this was fun. As always, it was great talking to you. Just one more thing. You just, this made me think of this. And just going back to the Hall of Fame conversation, you mentioned C.B. McDonald. You know, basically, once he built Mid-Ocean, he's in the Hall of Fame. I don't think it existed then, but he would have been. Do Tom Doak and Bill Corr, should they just be admitted right now into the Hall of Fame? Let's see, Tom. I would, for those guys, I'd make it it, once you hit 50 and you've done the work. So, yeah, I think they're both in. They're both in. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. They're they're in at some point. You might as well just do it now, right? Just a formality. Yeah. While they're living and having fun, let them enjoy it. I mean, you know that they're both going to keep doing what they're doing. You know, it's like if the Beatles had finished 10 albums and... You go, well, what do you think? Do we really need 13? No, 10's fine. If you do three more, that's terrific. That's how I feel about Doak and Coor. Awesome. Peter, once again, thanks, buddy. Thanks for doing this. Good to be with you, Double D. Okay. Good to be with you, buddy. All right. Call me. You know I'm here for you. I love doing the show. Thanks so much for giving me so much time and having so much fun. Okay. I don't know why I feel uh, compelled to tell you this, uh, but I do. I feel very compelled to tell you that I'm not really a, va- a fan of The Who. I don't really like The Who at all, but <laughs> I know that Peter Kessler is very knowledgeable about music and rock and roll, and I was very curious to get his take on The Who, and so I kind of set up the scenario where they might be number three after The Beatles and Stones. Uh, clearly, <laughs> he didn't think so. He's like, uh, no, they're not even top ten, which is why I wanted to talk to him about that, to get his analysis, to see what he thought of The Who, uh, what he thought of Roger Daltrey, who, by the way, is a really interesting guy. I listened to him on recently on the uh, WTF with Mark Marin podcast. Uh, fascinating guy, not a great singer, uh, not a great band, uh, in my opinion, at least, and Peter's too. Uh, but that was fun. That was basically a 90-minute uh, infomercial for Peter Kessler and his media services and capabilities. I don't mind that, though. That's why we go to Peter uh, to hear his opinions and get his hot takes. I mean, when somebody is just uh, dishing like he was left and right, my job is, is just to feed him the ball, just to get out of the way, let him shoot, let him get off, let him do his thing. And that's kind of what I did. I let him run with that, try to feed him some topics. And uh, he doesn't need much. He just needs a, a little window, and he's going to take that shot. Most likely, he's going to can it.
Uh, one last subject to cover. I wanted to go back quickly about the uh, idea of uh, rolling back the golf ball or modifying or controlling limiting technology. Um, I'm in favor of bifurcation. Just let let the pros play a tournament ball. Everybody else can play what they want. They, you can go out and buy the tournament ball if you want. That's great. You can play your own ball. You can play a top flight. You can go to Balada. You can play whatever kind of clubs that you want as long as they're conforming and everybody's happy there. That's what I think. But this idea that Brandel Shambly and others put out that somehow if you limit technology or you bifurcate the game or you roll the ball back, you're somehow going to uh, do destruction to manufacturing companies, which is utter nonsense. These companies are where they are because they are masters of selling equipment and selling a dream, selling the concept of improvement. They're selling hope. They're selling the future of the game. So whether we say everybody has to go back to persimmon-headed drivers right now, they're going to find a way to make persimmon drivers that the public wants, that the public thinks that they need, and they're going to pitch it and sell it as a better persimmon driver than the competition and a better persimmon driver than they came out with 18 months ago because their research and technology and their scientists and their marketers have done such an amazing job that they've figured out a way to get four more yards out of your driver when you swing this particular club and you need to go out and buy it now. People are not going to all of a sudden stop buying equipment. Even if you rolled the ball back, people are still going to play golf. They're still going to go buy golf balls. They're still going to hit golf balls in lakes and in the trees, and they're going to have rounds where they lose 12 golf balls, and then they're going to go online or to their retailer and buy another couple dozen golf balls. It doesn't matter how far they go. People are going to buy golf balls. They're going to need golf balls. I mean, people are always going to need clubs. They're always going to want something that they think is going to help them play golf better. The manufacturers are going to find a way to sell that dream to them. So there's no downsize from a capitalist perspective of putting a limit on the technology or the distance a golf ball can go or the size of drivers or anything else. The manufacturers, because it's what they do, it's what they're good at, it's what they've already made billions of dollars on, they'll find a way to make a club or a ball that the customer wants and that the customer believes in. And the customer, the golf customer, as they always have done since the beginning of time, needs new equipment. They constantly want to upgrade. They roll through their old equipment. They upgrade. Then they roll through that. And when the manufacturer puts out a new quick fix, a new magic club, they go and buy it. It doesn't matter if it's limited or if it's different than we have now. It will still sell. Okay, that's enough of that. Thank you for listening to the rant. Thanks again to Peter Kessler for coming on and sharing his ideas, clarifying the whole uh, kerfuffle with no laying up, giving us uh, some wonderful notes on current media. Take that to heart, everybody. (laughs) Thanks to you for listening. Uh, Check me out on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Go to FeedTheBall.com and check out past podcast episodes. You've probably missed some. Go back and listen to them again. There's uh, just a a long, deep list of great artists and designers that I've had the privilege to talk to. A lot of good stuff in there, so go check out the past archives. Thank you to all of you who've gone to iTunes and other places and rated the program, given a star rating, and there have been a few new comments on iTunes as well. Thank you very much for that. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'd like to thank the Sun Dogs as always, and until next time, everybody, cheers. 12 hours out of Mackinac City, stopped in a bar to have a brew. Met a girl, we had a few drinks, and I told her what I decided to do. She looked out the window a long, long moment, then she looked into my eyes. She didn't have to say a thing I knew what she was thinking Roll, roll me away Won't you roll me 
your home 